0: Bienvenidos! Welcome back, everyone, to Episode 5 of The Heart Podcast. I'm Dr. Milagros Castillo-Montoya, and I'm here with co-host and co-producer Omar Romandia. On today's episode, we are focusing on art history and using art to engage people in critical professional development. On today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Alexis Boylan, who is the Director of Academic Affairs at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute and Associate Professor with a joint appointment in the Art and Art History Department, as well as in the Africana Studies Institute at the University of Connecticut. She is the author of the book entitled Visual Culture, as well as the book entitled Ashcan Art, Whiteness and the Unspectacular Man. She's also co-author of the book Furious Feminisms, Alternate Routes on Mad Max, Fury Road. Her next book focuses on art created for the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and how art and science antagonize and inspire cultural dialogues about truth and knowledge.
1: Also joining us on today's episode is Dr. Melissa Crum, who is an artist, author, researcher, and founder of the consulting company Mosaic Education Network, LLC. MOSAIC infuses the arts, research, storytelling, and critical thinking into professional development, community building, and curriculum development. Dr. Crum has facilitated training sessions across the U.S., creating a non-judgmental and refreshingly honest look at privileges and privately held beliefs. Her workshops focus on workplace culture development, equipping educators, leadership, staff, and board members with the skills to implement inclusive and equitable practices. By creating a brave space, Dr. Crum's workshops allow organizations to critically investigate policies, workplace, and learning culture and relationship dynamics. Welcome, Alexis and Melissa. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations.
0: So thank you, Alexis and Melissa, for joining the conversation today, focusing on anti-racist teaching through art, art history, and art education. We would like to begin our conversation today by hearing a bit about your journey with art, how it came to be such a core aspect of your career and work. Alexis, would you be willing
2: to get us started in the conversation? Sure. Um, I don't really have a particularly like inspiring story. Actually, my story is a little bit about being sort of a bad student and being very distracted in my college years and feeling a little bit disaffected in my classes. And um, I came to college uh, very politically active and very sort of engaged with books and ideas and art. And I think by the middle of college, I just, I don't know, I just felt very... um, uh I was having a very good time but I was not maybe focused on uh uh, the future um but I so I I somebody told me to take an art history class and you know that it was like you know it would be cool and it was late in the afternoon which is when I tried to schedule my classes I really was a terrible student in college but um all the wrong reasons for taking classes but uh I absolutely like like it, it was, I think it's the way that like in romance novels, people talk about like falling in love. Like I just, um, the sitting in a dark room and looking at images and going all of these different places and across time and seeing bodies and um our world in just vastly different ways was transformative. And I just um again, it really was like this thing that just changed my life. Um, At that moment, I decided that I actually wanted to, you know, like maybe start going to school for real um, and not being such a bum about my college classes and attending them and all that sort of thing. Um, And I just took as many art history classes as I could. And then I went to graduate school and graduate school was, um, again, it was like, like the longest, most beautiful, I mean, it was terrible. All graduate school is terrible all the time, but it was like a honeymoon of like, Just being with art and going to museums and meeting curators and just sort of imagining what a life that I could have, I could talk about, I could talk about art, I could talk about images, I could talk about the ideas um, that were important to me. And I could do something that I felt was important. Um, Making a contribution was something that was just really important in my family like I I was supposed to make a contribution of some I was supposed to use. My life to make some kind of contribution, and I really just did feel like, at that moment, that talking about art, talking to people about art, and bringing art more in people's lives was something that I could I could maybe make a contribution with. So yeah, that's where it got started. Um, in terms of anti-racist, I think it just became one in the same. Um, that I, I I became I I truly believe that the way in which we We see the world is the way that we then understand the world. And so we need to see a better world. We need to produce a better world. We need to think about how we see and think about our agency in seeing. um, I think more aggressively. And and that became sort of what I that, that became what I knew I wanted to do sort of in terms of how I wanted to talk about visual culture and art.
0: I think it's interesting because I'm in higher ed and we always say like who was in undergrad or even before going to college always dreamed of like mommy or whatever parent in the future. I want to be a student affairs practitioner. Like nobody <laughs> does that. You <laughs> kind of fall into it. But once you fall into it, it is it is transformative. It's a, it becomes a calling um, that's bigger than you and so I really appreciate your story of how you kind of fell into art and then what it did for you. Melissa I'm curious if you'd be willing to share a bit about your journey with art and how it came to be such a core aspect of your career and work.
3: I started I always enjoyed art. Um, I, I, I had my dad's um, like little doodles and things that he would draw um, and he passed a uh, Uh, when i was really young and so i started to think that i could draw like him and so (laughs) i that's kind of how it started and then it progressed into me wanting to be in visual effects so i'm the person i don't know if y'all remember hbo used to do like hbo behind the scenes like those types of things i was the person who watched that and figured out how they made the things right and then um so things like a uh, The Terminator, like how did they, how did he go from like a person to like the gelatin? Like, what was all of the things that? So I was really interested in that. Um, then, as a, an undergrad, I um, I became um, a McNair scholar, and so it's uh, a trajectory for. Um, Uh, folks of color to start progressing into grad school. And so my research project was um, I was really interested in this connection between color and sound and how that impacts what we understand this character to be. And so so for example, if you're a villain, you're usually dressed in darker clothes. Um, If there's something scary happening, there's going to be like high-pitched kind of violin sounds or things like that. So how... These juxtapositions ultimately can impact what we assume about this character before we even know about them. Um, and I didn't have language like bias and like, I didn't have those types of things. But I was like, there's 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 a there's a we already have a framework for how we understand or misunderstand things based on color and sound, and that could be easily translated into like accents and color of skin and clothing and things like that. Um, I then went from undergrad to going to get my MFA in animation. So by this time, uh, we have DreamWorks and Pixar and all those things. And so I began, I got really interested in that. Um, I had an opportunity to um, work with DreamWorks um, while in grad school. And they screened Shark's Tale. And I realized, I started to realize I like animation. I like the result of it. I don't know if I like creating it. It's kind of like you like classical music. You're not really trying to learn how to play the cello. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're not really, like, once you start learning, like, I didn't really want to know how to play piano. I just like listening to it. (laughs) And so um, I started to realize that in um graduate school. Um, but so we we're working with DreamWorks and um they screened Shark's Tale. And I don't know if you all remember Shark's Tale, but it's um it's a story that's captured under the sea. Um Will Smith voices the character and um what the main the protagonist. And um when he comes on screen, he has his like hat turned backwards. He's a fish, by the way. His hat's turned backwards, he has this gold chain and he he quotes this like Wu-Tang lyric and I was like what's happening here um and like the jellyfish have this weird Jamaican accent their their tentacles are supposed to read as locks they're the henchmen so there's something weird happening and I didn't have the language still at this time but these characters were essentially racialized and this is a kid's film right that's telling us um not only what it means to be black but what it means to be um like italian specifically for example because these sharks were like this godfather like kill all the whatever and then there was this also this weird trans narrative that was happening because lenny who's a shark doesn't want to be in the mob in the shark mob so he's now wants to represent himself as a dolphin so he like sprays himself and he has this like handkerchief and it's like there's something there's some weird weird things happening here again didn't have like language around sexuality race language around race um, but then I feel like that was like the the thing that was like I can't I can't just make you know, this kind of cartoon because ultimately when I was talking to DreamWorks and not just DreamWorks when I, when also when I was talking to my chair um, I was like I want to do my work around um, why why we're making the decision to make Oscar have this gold chain quite incite Wu Tang like why are we making these decisions. And they essentially said, well, we don't really care about that. What well, we care about, did you make the gold chain realistic? Like, that's essentially what this program is for. <laughs> like, did you make it realistic? When he went like this, did it look authentic? <laughs> so uh, that's not really what I'm going for. And so I end up leaving. And then she said, I think you just need to go to African American, African studies. Like, you just need to go over there and think about it. <laughs> So I said okay, and so I went and got my master's in African American African Studies, and I went over there thinking like I was crazy. Like, am I crazy for thinking like? And they're like, oh no, there's tons of people who've been writing on visual culture and animation in particular and how they racialize characters. And I was like, oh, thank you, African American African Studies, like you know what I'm talking about. And so I did my dissertation on uh, racialized anthropomorphism, which is essentially the history of racializing animals in such a way that tells us what it means to be black um, and how that showed over across the decades and then I then decided well then I just want to go make films like I should be the person to make these better films <laughs> but then I fell into another trap of like I like films but I don't necessarily want to make them right and then I, I visited um I think it was I can't remember what it was a, a college that was focused on film and they, I sat in on a class and it was a film history class and every film history class goes over birth of a nation, like 19, what was it? 1910 or whatever it was, but they don't, they talk about it as, um, in their visual effects context because of like her falling off the cliff and how that was like a massive visual effect situation. Um, and it was, but they don't necessarily talk about why she jumped off the cliff. <laughs> she jumped off a cliff because she didn't want this black man to touch her because all these free Negroes was coming to rape the white women like we cannot talk about this um and so I was like yeah I can't I can't do this either and so I ended up I went and got my PhD um in art education to start thinking about how can I utilize art as a tool to think through so much of what we've been socialized to learn
0: Okay, it was so much in what you both shared and Melissa's, also, um was a, a former McNair scholar too, so I always oh, get really yeah. excited when I get to meet another one, um, and your journey is just really interesting because there's these moments of excitement about what's possible, and then you get to pull the curtains and see what's reality inside of art and art production, right, and... You decide I'm going to close that curtain and go somewhere else because that's not what I want to be about. And so it's really interesting where you ended up because that being a part of your journey. And you you ended by sharing that, you know, it really led you to thinking about how art can be a tool, you know, to be exposing um, how these issues come to be. And so I'm wondering if you could share um, what does anti-racist teaching mean to you? given your own respective journey and what does it look like when you do engage in teaching about art? How do you use art as a teaching tool that is really anchored in anti-racist tenets? Melissa, would you be willing to to share some thoughts on that?
3: Sure. So what anti-racism teaching means to me is is being really intentional about highlighting what racism is. Um, and that means also highlighting what white supremacy is. And people like to kind of differentiate those <laughs> things. And like, no, they happen at the same time. Like you cannot have racism without white supremacy. Um, and 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 then if you if we understand what racism is, then we understand that they're kind of different categories of it. So there's like interpersonal, which we focus on, I feel like a little too much, which is how we talk to each other, which is important, but we kind of center on like you said a mean thing or you did a mean thing to like, yes, we should not treat each other poorly. Also, there are multiple levels <laughs> to this. And so then thinking about institutionally, what does that mean? What, how does what does racism look like on within the institution of education or healthcare or financing or housing access and things like that? And then thinking about it uh, systemically, like what is the what are the policies, practices, and law that undergird all of those things? Racial Equity Institute has a really great analogy of fish lakes and groundwater. And so they see of programs and things of very fish centered, like, you know. Um, you need, I see that you need this. And so we're going to do this program to help you individually. But we're not necessarily looking at, for example, lakes that will say, okay, how do we shift policies around ensuring that people have greater access to, let's say, higher education? And then groundwater is looking at what is the what are the, other larger federal state, other types of policies and practices that would feed into those lakes that ultimately create the fish that we say we're trying to help. Because otherwise, we're just going to keep dealing with fish if we never deal with the groundwater. So when we talk about anti-racism, um, recognizing, being honest about where we're hitting, like if we're just doing fish stuff, then just be clear about that, that you're not tackling lakes and you're not tackling groundwater. Like You're not tackling institutions. you're not tackling systems. And so when um when i utilize art to do that the hope is is to go through those levels so people can understand where they are because some people aren't can't even conceptualize like systems yet like that it's like it's too it gets too much it feels like nebulous thing out there so like bringing them to like the personal seeing how that connects to something larger than them and then how that connects to something historically and so I like I prefer narrative works um so I don't necessarily think about abstract artworks and things like that like more kind of narrative um human subject centered uh, works that we can start to think through what is the narrative that um, that we are placing on this image because we can we can read what the artist said but usually I leave that as like later like what narrative are you placing on the subject in this painting and then recognizing that narrative that you created for that subject came from whatever information or misinformation you've gathered before this point and so if they realize that, when we get to the point where we realize that, and then think about how does that narrative creation that you just did manifest in how you teach your students, how you care for your patients, how you uh, choose to give this, underwrite this loan for this person or not. Um, and then how, how many people are like you doing the same thing? across your industry across the country and so bringing them through those levels art gives an opportunity to open up that conversation it can feel very neutral for many people as opposed to like giving them a study like we get to studies we don't get there first (laughs) to kind of help them see where that comes from and they can kind of see themselves in the larger system uh, policies and practices, and so they're not operating in a vacuum. Actually, they're quite connected to strangers across the country, across the globe, doing similar things and impacting large groups of people.
0: This is really interesting, um, Melissa, because essentially you're you're having people um, that you educate think about their positionality, but you're doing it by giving them an entry point. That's a, that's art being neutral, but also an entry point that's very personal, intimate, kind of like, what's what's your story about this art? Like, how, you're, how are you developing that narrative or story about this art and why? And essentially leading them to understanding their positionality in the world. That's just really deep, um, really interesting. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, Alexis, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a bit about what anti-racist teaching means to you. And what does it look like when you're teaching art or art history? Um, How is art a tool that can be used for anti-racist teaching?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's such a great question. And I just, um, I'm really still processing a lot of what Melissa had to say. It was really helpful. Um, You know, I think, So, I mean, I think the primary sort of moments where I'm teaching are in a classroom and that's a very structured space, right? Like they, that, that I am the teacher and I'm at the front of the room and the students are looking at me and they're like, okay, give it to me. And the other sort of moment is when I go into museums and I, I, I do talks for docents or, um, uh, uh, or, or museum audiences. And that too is this sort of like, well, you are the expert. So now you, you unpack it for us And I have to say that I think that my vision of um, what I can contribute to um, both anti-racist dialogue but also sort of thinking about visual culture is to um, a little bit, uh, first of all, I think talk to people about how much visual imagery is thrown at them constantly. Um, that we are essentially visually accosted from, you know, the second we wake up and we roll over and we look at our phones. Um, throughout the whole day at, at literally thousands of images, some of which we choose to let in, but actually a really large portion of which we don't choose to let in and that we have no control over. Um, and often that leaves people, and, and I do think that, that this, I mean, there's all kinds of longer historical reasons for this, but it leaves actually everyone feeling very disempowered about their relationship to what they see. they. I think that, and, and I mean, certainly there are corporate entities and, um, and entertainment ent- entities that also want us to feel like we give you what you need, you take it in. Um, and, and I think that what I like to communicate with people and try to get them to um, think through is a little bit their own agency to let things in or to deny things, and part of the way that then I do that is by talking about choices. Um, that everything that they're seeing is actually a million choices that have been made by people, um, uh, and you know that that have been made by artists, by designers, by focus groups. Um, that nothing that you're seeing is actually just some kind of like raw you know, like shoot the shit, like who knows what'll happen. Even things that we see on Instagram or even things that sort of portend to be like, Oh, this just happened. Somebody has to decide to not edit it or edit it, where to put the camera, what to focus on. And so I think one of the things that I really want to do, and this sort of ties in with Melissa's sort of conversation about sort of the way in which, um, Uh, we can't talk about anti-racism or racism without talking about white supremacy, that people can't sort of just imagine that images just sort of like fall out of the cosmos and land there and then we just have to take it or we have to believe it. Um, So I think that what I really like to do is to try to, first of all, activate people to think about how many choices there are and who's making those choices and if you would trust any of those people to make any choices about any other aspect of your life, how much sort of, you know, like how much power do we hand over to sort of all kinds of people and, 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 and museums um, and educators, you know? I mean, I, I think that, um, so I think the one thing that I really try to encourage in the classroom is to just don't take anything at face value. Don't just let it in think about it, ask what choices are being made. And then I think that there's also, I have to say, like a lot of shame around concepts of art. People feel, and and I would say this is across the board, people feel like, um, that they don't have the equipment to look at art or that they're not good enough to go to a museum or that they don't have the skill sets or the information, that they need a person like me to tell them what the art means. And I think that the other thing that I really like to encourage is for people to sort of um, a little bit lose this sort of weird shame that has been pushed around the idea of art and just actually try to pull back and find pleasure like what makes you happy? Um, I, th- I find happy an easier place to access than sad, although I like to work up to sad too. Like what is it that that looks that you look at and something shifts in you? And why did it shift and how did it shift? And and, and what are the other options other than shame or ignorance or feeling like I should have listened more in class or I'm traveling to this place and I should go to a museum, but I don't want to, like what are the other ways in which all of us could access images that would be less shameful and less self-hating and more um, about curiosity. Like, what could that mean? And what skills do I have to confront images? And what life experiences do I have to say, you know what, that image is pulled together from a whole lot of things that I don't want anymore. Um, uh, And so I think that, like, that sort of that's like a real sort of like I don't know that sounds very dreamy and like woo woo but I think it is a little bit about trying to figure out ways to allow people to allow visual images in and to also block visual images out and to that they know they have the power to do that and that and that they also have the power to make choices And that that actually is an incredibly important turn and a political turn and a social turn that we can make um, uh, and that we should make.
1: Wow. Uh, So, so many good nuggets there. Uh, You too. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing uh, such valuable insights. I'd like to specifically reference a point that I believe it was Alexis made towards the beginning of our conversation that, um, in which you mentioned that the you know the 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 way that we see the world is the way that we understand it as well and that just made me think of um also like how we see the world is is how perhaps we also choose to tackle like problems as well mm-hmm. um like our approach to problems like what is our interpretation of the problem itself or problems and i kind of i want to tie that to the point that that you made melissa about the the, the multidimensional aspects of just the um issues of oppression that that we deal with and specifically in in, in anti-racist education and it made me think of um and a topic that we're covering in in one of my classes actually on intersectionality which is a very very you know it's a it's a hot word it's it's a buzzword you know we hear it but how, how often do people actually think about it, its origin, kind of like digging beneath the surface? And, and it, it was, to my surprise, um, found out that intersectionality is actually rooted in the analyses of, of the lived experiences of women of color, and specifically the simultaneous presence, interaction, and influence of identities and social location. And so, again, going back to specific to higher education, we're dealing with the interpersonal, the institutional and systemic issues these multi-tiered um, issues and, and 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 again it's like when 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 people are looking to make an intentional effort or make looking to make intentional changes wh- what part of that tier are they tackling are they aware that it's a multifaceted you know issue that they're tackling and so it seems that you both are very intentional about your work and you have a very good pulse check on the the macro and the micro and everything in between related to the issues Um, That that you're both um, involved in in your daily practices and so I'm really curious to to hear how how did you come to teach the way that you do and, and use art in the way that you do the both of you kind of alluded to this, based on your personal upbringings and your personal stories. But at the same time, I'm wondering also if there was something in, uh, perhaps, in your educational trajectory that you were exposed to, or was there a gap in your educational trajectory where you found an opportunity to perhaps teach art in a certain way that could resonate with, uh, with a with a wide audience? Um, and uh, Melissa, do you mind getting us started with that question, please?
3: Sure. So, um, so so funny intersectionality. Um... So first, um, it's really important when people utilize intersectionality, um, they understand that it's, it's not just identity recognition, right? It's not just saying, you know, I'm native, I'm a woman, I'm, I identify as lesbian, I'm disabled, like I'm practicing intersectionality. Like, so it's intersectionality is saying, because you have these identities, how does that give you access or limit your ability to be, to move through and within systems? How does that that compromise your access to healthcare, to education, to, how does that compromise the ways in which you engage with law enforcement or the criminal uh, system or whatever it might be? And so that means inherently Intersectionality is investigating racism at a systemic and structural level, and so when we when we don't recognize that, we'll think of it as as one of as something else. And I think that we run the risk of doing a disservice to essentially what Crenshaw wanted us to do, um, or what she was doing through. To use a hot button word, critical race theory, because that's exactly that's where intersectionality (laughs) comes from, right? You know, it's it's cuss word right now, but you know that's it is what it is. (laughs) And so, um, when I think about how uh, that shapes how I teach uh, and using art, I, I like to use artists that are asking us to think through those multiple identities. So I think of, for example, Roger, Roger Shimomura, who is a um, Japanese American, who, who has a series around his experience in an internment camp um, here. At, or, well, internment camp, concentration camp, is really what we should call it, um, here in the United States. And so that intersection of being um, of Japanese descent of being a citizen of being uh, uh, all of these multiple things um, not just for him but other folks what did it mean for folks who are business owners but folks who are homeowners like who had to be removed from that space for multiple years? How does the system how how does how did the you ultimately had state sanctioned violence, right? Um, state-sanctioned um, oppression because you had these multiple identities, right? It didn't matter that you were a citizen. Like, that didn't protect you. Um, and so all of these multiple things and thinking about the, um, the no-no boys um, and all everything that came with those multiple identities. So that's specifically them being men, them being of Japanese descent, them being young, up to ultimately being drafted, saying no to being drafted, and going to prison for, for um, not doing that. So using artwork like that, artwork like um, Titus Kaphar's work that asked us to really, re- really question um, how we understand or misunderstand history. Carrie James Marshall's also doing some interesting work around thinking about um, identity space and space. Um, and so I really like using i often mostly use contemporary artworks like i said narratives with um, human subjects and so if somebody that's asking us pulling us in to ask more questions about what's going on and that makes it easy going to what kind of what you said alexis like people for so like, well, I don't have the tools to kind of understand this Jackson Pollock. Well, neither do I girl. So, um, but what we can do, <laughs> we can talk about something that feels very clear, right? Uh, which is there, there are two people or multiple people doing a thing and we're trying to understand what that means. And as I continue to give you pieces of context, um, It helps people um, start to reveal some things. It's always interesting when I use um, Menandeko on my mind, which is a Roger Moore painting, and then so many people are like, "Oh, they're out camping," or like, "Oh, this, you know, the smoke is here because they're like, there's a campfire." And yeah, some people don't even see like the military figure in the foreground. Like, it's just like their mind just like doesn't see it. Or they're like, this person is there to protect them. But then like, why are they there? I don't want to think about that. I want to think about them being at a campsite. And it's how you just choose to actually literally delete what's in front of you to focus on a story that you prefer. And so how we do that with art, we do that with real human beings. We can delete the the image, the information that we're getting to redirect the story in a way that we feel gives us comfort. And that's one of the ways in which white supremacy can show up is centering racial comfort. And we have to recognize what that looks like because it, it doesn't make me feel comfortable knowing that this military person who's probably white might have killed that old woman that I see right there in this image. And and then when we read it, it's like he probably he might have because they did murder people on the in the internment camp. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to think about that. And so when we recognize how white supremacy can show up, how that shows up in not only how we utilize or think through art, it shows up how we think through our lives then we can draw that direct connection. And when um, we start asking who made these choices, like Alexis was saying, who made these choices? We can ask like, well, why? And what does that mean? And how does that impact the story I've created about what's happening here? And is that as complex as it can be or should be?
2: want to like add on to something that Melissa is saying I mean I think I love this idea I mean because this happens to me in class all the time like that you show students something and you're like wait are we are we just totally not going to talk about the thing that's right in the center in the middle and that's like blazing you know like a blazing cut like what is going on and it is the way in which again I think seeing is not uniform we're taught to see and then we're also I think taught not to see Constantly, we're taught to not see by our parents. We're taught to look away. We're taught when we've looked too much. I mean, think about how much instruction goes into kids being like, don't look at that or turn away or stop looking. You know, like just, I was just thinking about, I was driving the other day and there was an accident and the sort of like, don't look at the accident, you know, and the sort of like, don't be a rubbernecker or whatever. And so much of our lives are about being told to look or look away that it is, of course, like Melissa, you're exactly right. Like, we are all being instructed by each other and parents, and as children and as adults, to, to not see, um, uh, to, to, to sort of, or to edit as we go along, um, not in empowering ways, but actually in really destructive ways. I would actually then add to that when. Um, we start thinking about what's made invisible. And this is why I love this new Titus Kaffour, um, his newer work, where there literally are figures that have been disappeared from a canvas. Um, uh, his mother's and children and then often the child or the mother is left sort of just the outline um, and then a blank space. But I think that one of the things that we can also do and it's important to talk about is what's been made invisible. Who's been left out of stories? whose images do we not see? Um, uh, uh, what is it that we're a told not to look at and then B what are we actually forbidden to look at? what is made disappeared? Um, and I love to sort of I mean I think that you know we imagine that we live in this age where we can get any image we want that we have access to anything, but we're so controlled, right? like you can Google an image, but Google is, thinking about who you are and what kind of images you would see when you type this in. You don't get to see the multiplicity of all the things that are in the world. You get to see what Google thinks you would like to see. Um, And that's really different. And that that I think is, and we're so used to it, we don't even question it. Like, oh, these are all the images that Google had. It's like, well, wait, who assigned Google? Like what? And I think that, you know, and and who decided that a museum gets to tell you whose bodies have mattered and whose bodies should matter? And, you know, why does this gallery, why does this art history class? And so I think um, I just, I love that point, Melissa, and I just wanted to add to that because I do think that it is about what is seen and what is unseen, what we choose to look at and what we choose to look at and then edit. Um, And we do it all the time. And I think it is about, um, uh, you know, preserving a white preciousness um, that doesn't want to imagine itself ever as being um, a, a victimizer and um, a, 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 an actor in a lot of ways, not even a bad actor, but just an actor. Um, and I think that we see that so often currently in our politics is sort of and, and I do think this is a real pressure for museums, that museums are, are encouraged to show brown bodies, but never encouraged to talk about why we haven't seen brown bodies in museums before and all of the images that all these museums have in which white bodies are abusing visually and physically with violence brown bodies. Um, And I think that, you know, that's again, another sort of, you know, we need to begin questioning all of these silences. I just got like all empowered there. Sorry about that. But Melissa, you just like totally set me off. I was like, exactly. And another thing. And another thing. So
1: (laughs) I I love that. I love that. You got to ride that wave. You got to ride that wave. So so much innovation and great, uh, great thoughts have been shared thus far. Alexis, I think, I think the last point that you made about just, you know, asking questions and being more deliberate, I think for members of our audience that perhaps are asking themselves, these questions that have been enlightened by the the awesome insight that, that you both have shared. What is a piece of advice that you would would both give to others um, that are looking to engage in anti racist teaching through art, through art history, through our education? Uh, you know, recognizing that all of us are at different points of uh, our professional and personal spectrums. But yeah, what what would be a, a piece of advice um, that perhaps you wish you would have been given or or anything that just comes to mind. Maybe you're you're riding that innovation wave right now, um, Alexis. Do you mind getting us started with that question?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, and and I'm sort of I I deal with this every semester. I'm always trying to balance this, but um, to remember joy, um, that the visual can give us so much joy that along with the really difficult, negative, you know, devastating, genocidal aspects um, of of sort of the visual are also the possibility, the constant potential for us to really see each other, to really see ourselves, to be more forgiving um, uh, to our own bodies, to accept our bodies as they are, where they are, how they are. Um, I think that to imagine that we can find peace in art um, and, and that um, it is, uh, uh, I think it's important as, um, Uh, as teachers um, to make the message about the fullness of our experience um, and make that actually part of an anti-racist dialogue, that there is joy, that there is this potential for a better future um, and that we have to move towards that with as much um, power and strength as we move against the pieces of our society that we
3: wanna see gone. Absolutely. Um, I would say lean into folks who are doing that critical work. Um, and, and, and they may be doing some critical work with some of the stuff you love. So I know that um, Dr. Joni Aka and Dr. Kletchka out of Ohio State did this really interesting video, um, um, was not not critiquing. That's not what I'm looking for, like contextualizing Uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce's um, apeshit in the Louvre and thinking about it through a Black feminist, like, limb and what that meant to to your point, Alexis, like, to have Black bodies in the Louvre, like, like, juxtaposed to these non-Black subjects of (laughs) these paintings and, like, what does that mean? Um, And... uh, And and how we kind of think through that, and then I would say, um, as personal work, be willing to rewrite the stories that you've held dear, um, and practice practice being uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. practice reading hard history, Um, and I I I often use this concept of the bear. when I do uh, workshops and when we, if we're walking out in a forest and this bear stands up and growls at us, we're either going to run away, right? We're going to fight the bear or we're going to freeze when we're in, when we feel that we're in danger, that same feeling happens when we encounter difficult information that goes against what we understand to be true. So if we, thought that, no, me as, you know, a white person, I'm raceless, like, I don't have, I'm not connected to a larger group of, like, white people, and I'm not connected to this history of whatever, um, and then when you get, encounter- when you encounter this understanding of white supremacy, you can feel like it's a bear, Encountering this information can feel like a bear, and you freeze, you can freeze where you just shut down. You you no longer engage in a conversation. You flee. You like I don't want to talk about this and you leave right. Or you fight. You get defensive. You're like I didn't enslave people. I didn't. And it's like it's not, there's no bear here. There's no bear here. We're just in a difficult conversation. And to be aware that you are responding to an absent bear, and so once you get used to. Recognizing that, oh, this is how I respond. Let me think of some new, let me get some new tools to manage the discomfort that I'm feeling and recognize I'm not actually being attacked. I'm actually being asked to rewrite a story that I'm holding true. Uh, and And it may not be as true as I thought it was. And that's okay because the story is yours and you have the ability to rewrite it. And so feeling, the Instead of feeling attacked and feeling compromised, instead, we can feel empowered to, my, to write a more correct and complex story that is inclusive and also might be difficult, but is honest.
1: Dr. Alexis Boylan and Dr. Melissa Crum, we are so grateful to the both of you for the work that you're doing and for sharing such valuable insights with us today. Your intentionality in using art as a tool for anti-racist education was clearly shown throughout our episode today. And we have learned so much from you. We especially appreciate your vulnerability in sharing your journey with us. And we appreciate learning about how we can all be so much more critical about the visuals we are exposed to on a daily basis and the necessity to consider that all of it is intentional. And we all have an agency in how we engage with art. You have also highlighted how our interpretations of art also reflect our narratives, our positionality, and our racialized notions that we are holding in our minds that has implications for the actions we take in our lives. We are so grateful for your insights, wisdom, and critical questions. Thank you, thank you.
0: As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.